Welcome to Warhounds, a Privateer Press podcast. I'm Locke, he's Caster, and today we will be talking about Warcaster Rules Revised. Again, um, welcome to Warhounds, and today we will be discussing the uh, Warcaster rules. Uh, Lock or hi, uh, <laughs> Caster went in and um, did, made a big document, translated all the rules, sent it out to the public, got some feedback, and has basically because our we we realized that we got some stuff wrong in our first one, so he redid it. And there's a document, I, I think you have a link to somewhere or something. It'll be in the uh, description, I'll put a, a link to it. Yeah, and so it's, it's basically, he took the rule book and some other stuff, and he, he condensed it down to make it um, more accessible to the public. And yeah. this is something he does, he, he does in his spare time that he loves to do. This man <laughs> loves Word, Excel, or spreadsheet, or whatever. Spreadsheets, yay. Oh, in this case, it's a Word doc, but yes. This Iosin, I said man earlier. This Iosin used to play Eve Online for fun. Yes, spreadsheets in space. Yeah, basically. So, yes. So, <laughs> it, it, and, and um, I've done this before for other games as well. Basically, anytime I come across a rule book for a game I really, really like, that I, I, I don't. I, I've already made my case before in previous Warcaster episodes. I don't like flipping through the rule book multiple times in different directions to find things, so I condense he, it down. He he literally condensed down, made, laminated, and handed out rule guide sheets for Blood Bowl when we played it. Yes, although there was there was another guy who also did that. Um, I, event I eventually just kind of foregone mine because his were a little nicer in some ways. So now I've taken both my and his information and used them ye yes i don't know what the ye was okay don't look at me <laughs> anyway so this might be a, a very caster heavy episode he might sort of try to pull me in to read it forever now and then yeah uh and one thing to keep in note for everyone is that this is going to kind of be a um audiobook if you will so for those of you who feel you you really know the rules of playing warcaster neo mechanica and uh, you maybe this will be one to skip or maybe you want to listen to it and re and i'll go over something and you're like oh yeah i forgot that's how it works or oh my gosh my guys and i have been doing this wrong the whole time or whatever you never know um also uh, a little disclaimer here is some of the things in here just little bits here and there are not explicitly written in the rules however by talking and listening to other podcasts as well as people on discord and whatnot realize there's some certain etiquette things that have become widely accepted through most of the community that i have included parts of those or the more important parts here um so that the that that's there written down that you can print off and uh have uh so that you know the two of you don't argue over little things that are just easily um you know easily taken care of just by reminding yourself hey by the way um and we'll try to keep this under an hour but if it gets 
too far over an hour, we'll cut it off and split it into two parts. Correct. Uh, so, yeah. Um, without further ado, we should probably get into the subject matter. So, um, yeah. Beginning off, uh, at the beginning of each match, obviously, um, the players will want to uh, sit down and construct their armies. Um, really quick, I don't have how to construct an army as part of this, as that will be done before the game even starts, and part of it I haven't gotten into because we're waiting for the next expansion to come out. So, bear that in mind. Um, so, <laughs> enjoying your tea there, Locke? All right, so setting up. Very, very first start uh, part going into this now is the setup. First off, the players need to select a mission and set up the table terrain. At this time, players agree on the terrain rules with each other at that time. Make sure there is clarity. Next, both players draw a hand of five cipher cards from their racks. Following that, discuss with your opponent if your rack's discard pile will be discarded face up or face down. Note that this is an open information game, so if face up, then either player may look at the discard pile at any given time. That is a matter of etiquette, uh, that step is. Next, uh, after that, with cipher cards in your hand, each player then constructs their army. Note that this is only if you do not come with pre-built armies, say for a tournament or something like that. At a later time, I will have out a podcast regarding construction of armies. Each player then starts off with seven arc in their well, as it is uh, called, and sets that next to their rack. There's no specified area. Make sure both you and your opponent uh understand clearly where the rack is and that it doesn't get lost in terrain or other models and tokens. Then each player rolls a d6 and the player who rolled highest chooses to either go first or to go second. The player who goes second also chooses their side of the table to deploy from. The first player then deploys units with a total deployment cost of 5 arc uh, up to 5 arc within 5 inches of the rear table edge closest to them. Once done, the second player does the same. The first player then takes their first turn, and players alternate turns for the rest of the game. Players should agree on who is keeping track of turn and pulse round progression before the first turn happens. Do not let a turn... Uh, a lapse or two or three turns before realizing you forgot to keep track and no one was in charge of that. Turns. Note, the number of turns in a game is determined by the number of pulse rounds. Once three turns have elapsed, then a single pulse round ends. A skirmish level game has three pulse rounds, a primary level game has five. Note additionally that each scenario will have a spe uh, specified number of pulse rounds and number of pulse turns per pulse rounds. Um, to clarify that, if you have five pulse rounds, then five turns equals a single round. However many rounds you have is the number of turns in order to progress the pulse rounds. Alright. Moving on in the turns. First, ready phase. 
If all your units have action activation tokens, ready your units by removing all activation tokens from them. Two, charge phase. A player can choose to charge one friendly unit or void gate in play with one arc or clear any amount of arc from friendly units and void gates. Three, you can play one cipher card. Step four, activation phase. Activate one unit and up to one additional solo. When a unit activates, it can move and attack in either order, and then its activation ends. When a unit's activation ends, put an activation token on it. Five, you can play one cipher card. Again, this is the second time you get to do that. Six, deployment phase. You can deploy one or more units or recall one or more units from a void gate. Seven, you can nominate one friendly warrior model to place a void gate, or you can place a void gate anywhere within five inches of your rear table edge. Uh, a model that was deployed this turn cannot be nominated to place a gate. After nomination, place a void gate anywhere within five inches of that model. Then you can charge the gate with up to five arc. Note, you must charge the gate. If you're going to place one, you have to charge it with a minimum of one arc. Step eight, you can then discard one cipher card. And step nine, draw back up to a full hand of cipher cards. Note, when you draw your last cipher from your rack, you then uh, take your discard pile, shuffle it, flip it face down, and place it as this is now becomes your new rack. Matter of clarity, in case it was not clear the first time, the rack is your uh, deck of cipher cards. Additionally, a unit is any individual model. Not, and if you have a uh, group of, say, three units together that are all part of the same thing, that's a squad, where you have three or more or less, depending on which one you have. Uh, see your cards uh, info card for more details. This then ends uh, once you and your opponent have done step one through nine, the pulse turn ends and you begin a new pulse round. Uh, sorry, pulse turn ends and then once you ellipse however many pulse turns, then the round ends, depending on your scenario. Note, when the pulse round ends, both players resolve the following. Result. Oh, I, did. I realize I and my editors did not catch this. So the pulse round is actually the pulse turn ending. The pulse turn ending is what's going on right now. Uh, so I will fix that. The pulse turn ending. Okay, apologies. I uh, clarified that up there. All right, so at the end of the pulse round, I'm, I'm got myself a little jumbled there. My apologies again. Um, I apologize too much, don't I, Locke? You have a tendency. Yes. All right, so when the pulse round ends, both players do the following. Number one, resolve any continuous effects on your units, i.e. fire, corrosion, what have you. 
Number two, cipher cards that expire at the end of the pulse round expire and go to your discard pile. Number three, both players check the scoring uh, rules for the mission being played and for any applicable secondary missions. All scoring is simultaneous at the end of the pulse round. Note also that some scenarios have scoring at the end of the pulse turn. Be aware of that. And lastly, clear all applicable activation tokens from your models. So at the beginning of each pulse round, activation tokens are all removed and everyone is clear. That's something that we didn't even realize at the time, so we'll have to keep that in mind. Okay. Yes. All right, so that is how you do the turns and the round uh, information there. Next, we have general rules. But we need to be careful about the following, applying the rules. Each time rules or effects of the same name would affect a single model or unit, only apply the rule once. Card rules. Rules on a model stat card or cipher override rules in the rule book. Lastly is the mercy rule. If a player has no models in play, either units or void gates, they immediately lose the game. That is a mercy rule. However, in some situations, the players may choose to continue if they wish. Next, active player. The owner of a model making attack is the active player. If not applicable, then, they, uh, then it's the player whose turn it is. Uh, becomes the active player. The active player is in charge of deciding in what order effects or rules happen at the same time and when they should resolve. Again, whoever is currently attacking or whose turn it is, depending on applicable timing, is the one who decides when simultaneous effects uh, are resolved in. So if you have an effect A, effect B, they trigger at the same time, active player decides in what order. Very important. Next, we have advantages. The body armor symbol is compound armor. This gives the model plus one armor versus explosion damage. Next, if you're looking at your, uh, this is on the info card. Uh, if you have the advantage that is a wing symbol, that model has flight. The boot is Pathfinder. Treat rough terrain as clear terrain. The eye symbol is Revelator. Uh, Re My goodness. Revelator. That model ignores the stealth advantage. If it is the outline of a human with lines through it, this is stealth. Model cannot be targeted by attacks made by models more than 8 inches away. If it is two swords crossing, this is Weapon Expert. This model can attack with all of its weapons each activation. If it is a little body with a number next to it, this is the total number of models that are in the squad. So um, that's the number of models or units, if you will, the squad consists of. Next, Weapon Qualities. 
Weapon qualities. The explosion symbol is a blast weapon. After resolving an attack, roll a straight POW damage roll against the two nearest models within two inches of the original target. Note. If a model with an explosion weapon misses its original target, you still roll a straight blast damage roll against the original target. We'll come back to that. Uh, corrosion sign, which is the little vial that's dripping down onto a, a floor. Uh, model hit suffers a corrosion continuous effect. Fire symbol is fire. Models hit suffer the fire continuous effect. If it is a key lock, padlock or whatever you want to descri uh, describe that is this is lockdown model hit suffers the lockdown continuous effect next if it is a dot with curved lines coming from it configure kind of like a a sound bar if you will like volume settings i don't know how to describe it very well uh, this is Repulsor. Equal or smaller base models than the one making the attack are slammed three inches directly away before damage is rolled. And collateral damage is equal to the POW of the weapon. So if that original target hits another unit, or model if you will, uh, the model hit suffers the collateral damage. If there are several lines converging uh, on a single point, this is the spray icon, and it is a spray attack. We'll get back to those. Next, if there are three bullets kind of arrayed out in an arc vertically, this is the strafe rule. After declaring the attack roll, uh, after declaring the attack, roll attack dice. For each strike rolled, you can make one additional attack targeting another model within two inches of the original target selected. Each attack is resolved separately and does not trigger additional strafe attacks. Last weapon quality is the cracked cog. This is the system failure. On hit, model suffers a system failure continuous effects. What are the continuous effects, Caster? Well, I'm glad you asked. We're getting to them now. Unlike in the book, I've rearranged things so they're easier to find next to each other, so you're not flipping continuously back and forth through multiple different things. Oh no, that would be terrible. It is terrible when you're trying to resolve something quickly. Urgh. Hence why I did all this. Continuous effects are as follows. Firstly, models can have multiple different continuous effects at a time, but only one of each. Continuous effects are resolved at the end of the pulse round uh, to... What? Oh, for ex uh, also, continuous effects are resolved at the okay, end of the on. pulse round. The oh, okay, okay, move the mic. Sorry, we're rearranging the desk space so that Locke can do some painting. Well, I'm not very active, so I'm not going to just sit here. <laughs> Sorry. You can read the next section if you want. Uh, all right, so. <clears throat> where was I? I'm going to be straight up with you. I have not been paying attention. <laughs> someone will find this interesting, I hope. Yeah. I'm Someone out there will. I, I've, I've already had people asking for this, so I, I, 
know that it'll be useful to someone. Anyways, continuing on <clears throat> with continuous effects. They resolved at the end of the pulse round. To resolve each continuous effect, roll one action dice. If the action dice comes up as blank, the effect expires. If not, then the following occurs. Corrosion. While affected, the model suffers minus one armor. If it does not expire at the end of the pulse round, the model who has corrosion on them takes one damage per strike rolled on the action dice. Fire. Well affected, the model suffers minus one mat and rat. If it does not expire at the end of the pulse round, then the model takes one point of damage per strike rolled on the action dice. Lockdown. While affected, the model suffers minus two speed. Note, for this one and the following, if it does, if you, any strike is rolled on the action dice, no damage is taken, however the effect continues to stay. Uh, stay. So, in this particular case of lockdown, the model simply suffers minus two speed for another pulse round. System failure. When this is applied, roll 1d6. Not an action dice, but a 1d6. If it comes up as a 1, 2, or 3, then the affected model cannot make melee attacks until the system, lock, until the system failure uh, falls off. If it is a 4, 5, or 6, then the affected model cannot make ranged attacks. These effects, effects last until the system failure expires. And lastly, we have tune-up. Models affected by tune-up gain plus 1 to, speed, to strength, mat, rat, and defense. Again, that's strength, mat, rat, and defense. Plus 1 to all of those. Alright, that, resol that <laughs> resolves continuous effects. There you go. Uh, next, we have model stats. Speed, SPD, is speed. Number of inches a model can move in its activation. STR is strength. A number of action dice a warjack rolls when making strength checks. MAT, M-A-T, is the melee attack stat. This is the number of action dice you roll when making melee attacks. RAT, R-A-T, is a ranged attack stat. The number of action dice you roll when making ranged attacks. And lastly, we have FOC, F-O-C. This is focus. The number of action dice you roll when channeling fury attacks through a model. This could be a weaver or any other applicable model that has that uh, stat. One quick note is a model stat can never be reduced to less than one. This is especially uh, something you want to keep in track of if you have a low speed model and you use uh, lockdown on them or something like that. All right, um, I might have said lastly, there's actually more, <laughs> sorry. All right. Oh dear, not more. Not more. All right, so next we have DEF, which is defense stat. This is the number of action dice you roll when your opponent targets your model with an attack. Any strikes rolled offset the strikes rolled by the attacking player. So if the attacker rolls three strikes and you roll two strikes, your uh, the attacking player has hit 
by one strike because you reduced the number by two. We'll come back to that, but that's just a simple outlier there. Uh, arm, ARM, this is the armor. The number of strikes that must be rolled to inflict a single point of damage to any given model. Health, that's self-explanatory. Health, the number of damage points it takes to destroy this model. If none are printed on the unit's card, then it only has one point of damage. Thus, any damage it takes at all will instantly destroy it. Lastly, you have DC. This is the deployment cost, aka the number of arc you must clear from a void gate to put this model into play, or the number that you add together at the beginning of the game to determine how many models you will be deploying uh, when the game starts. All right, next we go into weapon stats. Walk, did you want to read any of them? Sure, I'll give it a try. All right. Where we are? We're at weapon stats, right here. Weapons and stats. We're going to start with energy type. A weapon's energy type describes the focus or focuses? Forces utilized. Forces utilized by the weapon to damage targets. The beam weapon does beam damage and so on and so on and so forth okay you're wordy sometimes you know that? <laughs> i am some weapons have more than one type of atta uh, attached to them the different types are as follows ballistic beam cold corrosion energy explosion fire kinetic and force. Mm -hmm. I read those in the wrong order. It's fine. Ranged, RNG. The range in, um, in inches, a weapon can target an enemy model. POW, power. So, pow. Pow. <laughs> uh, this number determines the number of action dice the attacker rolls. To resolve damage for the attack. Arc and charging units. Nope. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. So when you quote unquote charge a unit or void gate, you are moving one or more arc from your well to the unit or gate. A unit with one or more arc is considered charged. That is in quotations. A model that has no arc on it is not charged. When you clear arc from a model, you may remove an, uh, the arc and put it back into your well. When a unit is destroyed, any arc left on it is cleared and also put in your well. Now the following. First up. A void gate can be charged with up to five arc at any given time. A warjack can be charged with up to three arc at any given time. A solo can be charged with up to one arc at any given time, and squads can also be charged up with one arc at any given time. Squads can only have up to one arc regardless of how many units are still in the squad at the time that you charge it. Next, we have charging and spiking. Each unit has a special rule that becomes active when the unit is charged. 
Each unit also has a special rule enabling it to spike or clear one arc on it for a temporary effect. Charged and attacking it goes as follows. When a charged model makes a melee or ranged attack, add one power die for each arc on the attacking model. When you play a Fury Cipher card, do not add any power dice to the attack roll for arc on the channeling model, but instead add power dice to the roll for each number of arc in your well. And we will get into power dice here uh, when we get down to attacking, so hold off on that one. Alright, next we have Void Gates, Deployment and Recalling. Very first and foremost, rather than having to hunt around and figure it out, I'm stating it here. Void Gates are Defense 3 and Armor 5. You're welcome. <laughs> Next, at the end of the deployment phase and after deploying, a player can nominate one warrior model that has not been summoned this turn to place a Void Gate anywhere within 5 inches of it. Alternatively, the active player can choose to place a Void Gate anywhere within 5 inches of their side of the table, measured from the closest table edge to the player in, uh, whose turn it is. When placing a Void Gate, it must be charged with at least one arc and up to five. A because it can't exist without arc, people. Correct. A player can have up to two void gates in play at any one time unless the mission you are playing or scenario if you will states otherwise once in play a void gate remains until it collapses when a void gate is damaged remove one arc from it when the last arc is removed the void gate collapses and is removed from the table unless somehow you have dodging void gates i'm sure that's it Thing you at some have point. dodging <laughs> I've shot at your door gates before. Yes, yes. Um, so, as a matter of clarification, yes, the number of arc currently on your void gate is the amount of health it has. Alright, models can move through a void gate, but never ever stop on top of one. If this were to occur for any reason, such as a slam or something like that, the model must stop short of the void gate not on the other way through or through some sort of displacement it stops be right directly before it all right next up once per turn during the deployment phase a player can deploy one or more units or recall a single unit in play a player can choose to deploy from either that is that is very important you can yep. you can recall a single unit Yes. Not a squad. Correct. So you could recall one member of that squad, but not the whole squad. Yep. Uh, that's something that we've... Yeah. Anyways, moving on. Um, we've learned. Alright, so a player can choose to deploy from either or both void gates in play. You're not limited to one or the other. You can choose. To do this, you then clear a number of arc equal to the DC cost for the respective gate that the units are coming from. The models must be placed within one inch of the void gate they came from. 
When deploying a squad, only the first model must be within one inch. The others are then placed within two inches of the first. Models cannot be deployed within one inch of an objective. So be mindful of where you place your, your void gate. Lastly, instead of deploying, a player can recall a singular unit currently in play. When you do this, the unit is immediately added to your reserves. All tokens are cleared from it, and any arc are cleared this way are then returned to the respective player's well. If there is a situation such as a, um, this is for clarification, uh, or note, I should say, note. If you recall a model from the table, any cards on it that last for a pulse round or otherwise are removed, and any continuous effects are removed. So keep that in mind. Lastly, one thing I need to note that's something that I'm putting here that will become more prevalent when I revise this for the new expansion coming out, Collision Course, is you cannot deploy anything that costs more than the number of um, arc on the void gate. So if you have a squad and you attach things to that squad that cost six points or more total for the DC cost, you cannot deploy them. So when you're constructing your army, keep that in mind. Moving on. Activations, activation tokens, and readying. During the activation phase each player's, of each player's turn, choose at least one unit in play if you have one. Then also choose a solo in play. The unit and solo may be activated in any order, but each, order, each activation must be completed separately before moving to the next unit in question, or squad. While activated, a unit can advance and attack in either order. Then its activation ends. Once the unit has finished its activation, place an activation token next to it. A model can only have one activation token at a time. You cannot double up on them. Activation tokens track which units have activated, and models with activation tokens cannot be activated. If all of your models have activation tokens on them at the start of your turn, ready your units by removing all activation tokens from your models at that time during that phase. Next we have special actions. Some models have rules that allow them to make special actions instead of attacking. Some missions also grant special actions to certain models. Before or after movement, a model can perform up to one special action instead of attacking. When a squad member performs a special action, the other members of the squad may also do so or they can attack or move as normal. Speaking of movement, we now move on to how movement works. First up, you have the basic movement and advancing. Models cannot move through other models. They must move around each other. Models can never end their movement with their base overlapping another model's base. 
Additionally, a model can never end its movement overlapping an obstacle or obstruction unless it ends by ends its movement by standing on top of it as agreed upon when setting up the terrain. Lastly, when a warjack or solo advances during its activation, it can move up to its speed in inches. Um, that's really any unit with a speed stat can move up to its speed in inches. Uh, however, squad movement is different and is as follows. When a squad advances, either from activating it, a cipher card, or an ability that moves them, choose a single member in the squad. Then, advance that single squad member. Once done, you then quote reposition and quote the entire m remaining members of the squad to within two inches of that squad member that originally advanced. Note the following. First, reposition models must be placed so that they have line of sight to the original model that advanced, and any models that cannot be repositioned within two inches of that model uh, the model that advanced for any reason are immediately destroyed. Secondly, if a single model in the squad is affected by a rule that requires it to move or to be repositioned, but does not affect the whole squad, then you only move that singular unit, not the whole squad. Next, we have flight. Models with flight that are targeted by a melee attack gain plus two power dice to their defense roll against that attack. When a model with flight moves voluntarily, it ignores vertical distance and can move over models, structures, and rough terrain ignoring those effects if it has enough speed to move completely past. A model with flight can also move onto a structure and end its movement anywhere large enough for its base to stand. If, however, the model is moved involuntarily, such as from a slam, then it does not ignore rough terrain or vertical distances and does suffer falling damage. Also, it cannot move over structures other than models during it also cannot move over structures or other models during that movement. Sorry. So models with flight, if you hit you're still going to be moved as normal and fall and all that other things if you're on top of a structure. <laughs> um, next we have repositioning. A model can reposition as a result of a squad movement or special rule. Repositioning is not movement. Anything that would affect movement does not affect repositioning. When you reposition a model, it must be placed in a location it can stand or otherwise occupy normally. Now, anytime you have a situation where a model lands on top of a model and you need to replace models, here's how that works. Replacing models. When, a repla when replacing a model with another, place the new model so the area covered by the smaller... or Yeah, covered by the... Got myself tongue-tied. Okay. When replacing a model with another, place the new model so the area covered by the by their base is completely within the area covered by the larger base. If the bases are the same size, then place the new model in the exact same location as the previous model. 
There must be room for the model's base in the location the model is being placed to or you cannot place it there. So be very careful of the following, such as structure space, uh, if you are inside of a building or something like that. Other pieces of terrain, including ter scattered terrain. Also note that you will need to be as precise as possible with this placement. So use markers, lines, whatever you have lying around in order to help ensure that the model is placed precisely where it needs to be and it is centered as closely as possible over that base um, or as agreed upon by the players so long as everything stated above is correct all right lastly we have contact a model is considered to contact an obstacle or structure at any time uh, its vertical volume touches the base or structure. We will get to what the vertical volumes are later on. Uh, actually, here in just, just a few. Um, furthermore, when a model's volume is touching another model's volume, they are in contact. And lastly, when the models are touching and one of those models moves towards each other, such as from a slam or movement to a different point, but not ending base to base, they are considered to be in contact again. What that means is if you have model A and model B and they are considered to be contact, if you slam one, they are considered to contact again. It's not a situation of, oh, I can't go anywhere because they're already in contact, so no collateral damage happens and all that sort of, no, 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 no. You're still, it's still considered a collateral. You're still contacting again, uh, so keep that in mind. All right, next we get to where we at on time. Okay, so it looks like this will be a two-parter. Um, all right, I'll figure out where to cut it off here in a little bit. All right, so next we get to one of the very interesting parts of Warcaster Neo Mechanica, one that I actually really, really appreciate, and that's ladders, stairs, elevators, as well as the jumping and falling rules. These are quite quite interesting and uh, compelling, I feel. So let's go ahead and talk about how they work. So a model moving within one inch of a ladder, stair, stairway, or elevator can choose to move up or down the ladder, stair, or elevator. Doing so takes two inches of the model's movement. A model cannot move up or down a ladder, stairs, or elevator one being moved involuntarily, such as the result of a slam. After moving up or down stairs, ladders, or elevators, reposition that model, or sorry, unit, anywhere complete within one inch of the ladder, stellar, or elevator used, so long as its model's base will fit there. A model can then continue its movement from its new location to wherever its movement ends. Falling. A model that moves off of a position that is elevated above the base table top intentionally or otherwise falls and takes damage as a result. Models with flight can involuntarily move off an elevated height without taking dam falling damage. And if it was slammed off, however, it will still suffer the damage. Falling damage. A model that suffers falling damage takes a damage roll with a POW equal to each 
full inch model fell. Models that fall less than one full inch don't suffer any falling damage. Note, however, if a Warjack or Solo is damaged as a result of falling, it gains an activation token and then its activation immediately ends. So, one thing to really note there is the fact that you can intentionally choose to fall off of a height in order to avoid your opponent being able to get to you or to get to an objective or for whatever reason you choose. You will still take falling damage, but some models and units, that's not necessarily a problem if you end up where you need to. So, yeah, that's something you can use to your advantage. Lastly, we have jumping. Jumping is actually something very interesting in this game and doesn't work the way I originally thought it did. Uh, and maybe not the way you think it did either. So let's go ahead and go over that. <clears throat> jumping. At any time while moving a model, you can choose to have that model jump. A model cannot jump outside of its activation. When a model jumps, it moves in a straight, horizontal line through the air, allowing it to potentially pass over terrain and models beneath it. The, model jump, or, the jumping model's movement ends if its volume contacts an obstacle, structure, or the volume of another model while resolving a jump. After completing a jump, if the model is still in the air, Move it vertically straight down until its base is resting on the table or a terrain feature below. Then determine the distance the model fell vertically and resolve the falling damage uh, rules as normal. Keep in mind, um, a model with flight doesn't jump. It just moves wherever the heck it wants. Um, so you don't have to worry about the falling damage if it has it unless it was obviously moved involuntarily. And um, when you are jumping, it's kind of like a long jump. You're just jumping basically straight forward. Like if, if you want to measure it and mentally uh, think of it, it's like you're going an eighth of an inch up and then straight across. You're not technically doing that, but that, that's kind of in my mind how I justify what you're doing. You're just jumping straight across and then wherever your movement ends, you immediately stop dead in space and fall directly down until you you know, rest on something you legally could do so. Alright, continuing on. Jumping follows all normal movement rules with the following exceptions. A jumping model can move over another model if no part of its base would enter that model's volume. So you must start with a height higher than what that model's base or volume, or sorry, what the model in question's volume would be. Again, I'm going to skip ahead to the volume here in just a second. Uh, a model does not suffer rough terrain movement penalty if it jumps over rough terrain that is at least three inches below it during its movement. So again, measure three inches up from the rough terrain. If your jump is at least three inches or higher above that rough terrain, you know, tall grass, brambles, alien vines, whatever the hell you're deciding the rough terrain is, you need to be at least three inches above it, or you're going to suffer the rough terrain penalty. 
Next, note that impassable terrain cannot be jumped on or over, nor can a model enter that terrain for any reason. So if you and your opponent decided to be in a game, this is impassable. Sorry, you can't do any jumping over it, on it, around it, near it, basically anything like that. Lastly, we have exactly how to execute a jump. Once you've decided where you want the model to jump to, you then check that it is not going to pass through the volume of the other models and it is at least three inches or more above rough terrain before moving the model. When making the jump, the model moves in a straight horizontal line, like a standing jump or long jump if you wish, or running long jump. Insert example here. You cannot jump onto a higher location than when you started. So you can't vault up onto a platform or anything like that. Uh, if the intended landing point is on the same height and does not touch the volume of another model, terrain, or three inches above terrain, then you may move from your starting location to the intended landing point and continue your movement as normal. A model can make more than one jump in a single move if you have enough movement to do so. So if you want to jump over multiple one-inch gaps in your speed six, you could do that multiple times quite easily. Figure out the math from there um, for your, your uh, specific situation. If, however, the intended landing zone is on a lower elevation than when you start, then the following, or then everything, backing up here, if, however, the intended landing zone is on a lower elevation than you start, then follow everything above with the following exception. While over your intended landing zone, you measure the difference in height between your starting height and your landing point. For each full inch of difference, you do take falling damage roll for all of, uh, following all of the applicable rules for such. If your activation does not and due to taking falling damage, then you continue your activation as normal. So you can potentially jump down and then continue moving, providing you do not take any damage and thus have to um, take an activation token that would end your activation. So I have it here that terrain is next, but I'm actually going to skip down really quick to uh, volume. Models volume. Small base models. These models occupy the space from the bottom of its base to a height of 1.75 inches. Medium base models have a volume height of 2.25 inches. Whereas large base models occupy the space from the bottom of their base to the height of 2.75 inches. So at any time you are determining whether or not a jump or any other interaction would interact with the model's volume, you take, you're basically making a cylinder whose uh, circumference is equal to that of the base size of the model to a height of up to 1.75 inches for a small base model, 2.25 inches for medium, or 2.75 inches for a large base model. For those of you out there who are wondering, you know, what about when we get structures and we get vehicles and things like that, I will be updating this guide live for anyone who uh, checks it after I update it uh, so that they can then 
review all of this information and receive the updated stats. The small, medium, and large base uh, volumes will not be changed. I will simply add any of the ones we are missing. All right, so I think we will end there for now. And we will begin our next episode with how attacking works, measuring ranges and distances, line of sight and targeting, cover, blast weapons, slamming, cipher deck, so on and so forth. Do you want to record that right now, or do you want to, um, wait, we are about ready to go on vacation, just so everybody knows, so, um, and then, uh, so I, I turned 30 on the 7th, and then life decided that it was going to fall apart. <laughs> yeah. It really did. Um, so uh, there was like there was like a, a three days where just everything just happened all at once. Yeah, a whole a whole string of unfortunate events, uh, completely unrelated to each other, but all at the same time. Yeah. So um, it's been a little rough for us. We apologize for getting out our episodes slowly. Yeah. Um, so we might record the second part. We might not. We'll see what happens. Okay. Basically. All right. Well. Thank you for coming. We're glad you came. We like having you, and we'll get you a second part soon. Bye. Yay. Thank you for listening to this episode of Warnouns. If you'd like to contact us, I put our Gmail and Twitter info in the show notes. You can also find there a list of all relevant resources or shoutouts we mention or use for today's cast. There will also be a link to our Ko-fi if you feel so inclined to make a donation to our caffeine habits. And lastly, if you want to learn more about our intro or outro music, you can find a link to Prodless on Bandcamp. Bandcamp.